You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part five of a series in the book of Esther. Esther chapter six, verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honour or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman said to himself, hmm, Whom would the king delight to honour more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Pausing our reading at verse uh, 13 of Esther 6. Now, maybe you heard in my voice that uh, I, I think there's a there's a humour in this passage. You can't read this knowing what has gone before it without seeing great irony and even even comedy. Here is Mordecai, or sorry, Haman, who has been plotting with his wife and, and his advisors, uh, these people who he has bragged to about how great he is. And the plot is, oh, tomorrow morning, instead of waiting for Mordecai to be killed, set up a gallows, prepare that for him uh, and get him impaled tomorrow, either impaled on a stake or hung on the gallows, whichever is the right interpretation. And Haman turns up at the king's palace, but he doesn't know that the night before the king has been in a restless, sleepless state. And that the king had asked for books to be brought, the, the chronicles of memorable deeds, and to be read to him. Now, of course, again, God is not mentioned, but but the the person who knows their scriptures, who knows, for example, the book of Daniel and sleepless kings, 
And there, of course, God gave dreams to, to the kings. But when you get a sleepless king, it's usually a sign that God is speaking. And God is the one who has prompted, it doesn't tell us in, in Esther 6, but we realise that, who has, who has withheld the gift of sleep from this king. And as the king has pondered, perhaps he's, he's wondering what's wrong with him. He's feeling anxious. I mean, the middle of the night is often, if you're awake and can't sleep, an anxious time. And perhaps he's wondering, is there something he's left undone? Some reason why his gods are not giving him sleep, as he might have thought. Uh, and so he, he goes over this record of memorable deeds. And he notices that Mordecai had never been rewarded for saving his life. And so he he decides that he's going to do something about it. But <laughs> the wonderful irony, he, he who, who's in the court? Well, Haman has entered and, uh, and Haman is coming for a purpose, but the king has a different purpose and says to him, what would you do to the person who has honoured me? And Haman, drawn in by his own pride, assumes that it's himself that's going to be honoured. But instead... After Haman has given these wonderful suggestions, Haman has the indignity of having to go and dress Mordecai in the king's own clothes, lead him on the king's own horse and proclaim that this man is highly honoured. No wonder um, that, that Haman returns back to his house mourning, his head covered. And when he tells his wife and his advisors, his so-called wise men, that, that this has happened, they twig to the fact that Mordecai is a Jew, whether they didn't realise it before or whether now they've become convinced that the Jews are specially blessed and preserved. Again, God is not mentioned, but we can see it, can't we? Here are the people on whom God, God's favour is and no harm can befall them that God will not permit. The enemy will not triumph over them. Even Haman, who has plotted evil for them, has no choice but to bless them. And to bless specifically Mordecai. It's beautifully ironic. Haman is a tragic figure. Mordecai, who is not seeking out advancement, he's only seeking to save the life of his people. And yet he is going to be honoured in this powerful dramatic or has been honoured in this powerful dramatic way and behind it all we know are the actions of God the God who will never abandon his people the God who will protect and preserve them the God who will not allow the enemy any human enemy or Satan himself or death itself to have the ultimate victory over his people. God who declares that his people are more than conquerors through Christ. And here we are, the people of God. And the question for us, can we rely on God to preserve and save us? And the answer, a resounding yes. Because if we are of the people of God, no one will overcome us. But all our enemies will fall before us. Not because we are mighty, but because our saviour is mighty and he has overcome. We are more than conquerors through Christ. And in fact, I love this irony because it reminds me too that we, when we are cursed, are called by the Lord to return evil with good and to overcome evil with good and to return blessing on those who curse us. So Haman was uh, was 
forced into the corner of, of giving honour and blessing to his enemy Mordecai. But we, by the grace of God, are freed and called to freely honour our enemies, bring blessing to them in the hope that they might come to repentance. Let's read on, beginning in, in Esther 6 verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and let my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. What a, a turning of the tables. We'll, we'll pause there after verse 6 of, of Esther chapter 7. Imagine how Haman must have been thinking and as he is telling his wife and his advisors and so-called friends of his humiliation and, and Mordecai getting the upper hand unwittingly uh, over him and he, he's telling them all about it and they're saying, oh, you won't have victory over a Jew like Mordecai. Uh, but then the, the messengers come and Haman perhaps might have thought, oh, well, at least I get to go to the feast. Humiliation is past, now is the time for, for revelry. Esther again bides her time through the whole feast, whether it's one day or perhaps another two days. When it says at the end of the, the feast on the second day, that might mean that this is the second feast. Because remember, this is the day after the first feast, or maybe they feasted for another two days. But anyway, they're drinking wine, as they always seem to be doing. And the king asks again, Esther, what would you like and again, notice she doesn't rush in and say, I want the head of Haman. She says, if I find favour in your sight. Again, she uses the right language to honour the king, perhaps even to flatter him. And she says, my people. I want my people to be preserved and my life. We've been sold. And she, of course, she knew that the king had been bribed by Haman with this offer of 10,000 talents. And I wouldn't have said anything if we were being sold as slaves, but but our because our affliction isn't to be compared with the loss to the king. She's, she's again flattering him, but she has his ear and the king uh, asks her, who is it? Who has dared to do this? Who is it? whose heart in the Hebrew, the idiom that, that is translated dared, whose heart has filled him. Who is it that's gone as far as this? Who's had such audacity? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, Haman. And as you can understand, Haman was terrified before the king. 
Let's read on verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the, the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Ending for now at the end of chapter 7, verse 10. What a, a dramatic turning of the tables. Not only was Haman humiliated and Mordecai exalted in chapter 6, but now Haman is impaled or hanged on the very stake or gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Esther in her wisdom, the king once again, a weak king being led by whoever had his ear, just as Haman had led him, now Esther is leading him. But in his anger, he even misinterprets that Haman falls on Esther's couch, presumably to plead on his knees uh, with her. But the king even misinterprets that. And, uh, and if, if there was any possibility that his life would be spared before that, that the king might simply say, Haman, I'm demoting you and this is not going to happen to the Jews. No, this seals his fate. And Haman, this hapless, evil, wicked man, is put to death in the most humiliating of ways on the gallows or stake that he has prepared in front of his very own house. Let's read on Esther chapter 8 verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favour in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are, who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regards to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. We'll pause there after verse 8 of Esther chapter 8. So there's a, a problem here. 
Esther pleads with the king just because Haman has been executed and just because Mordecai is given Haman's house, another part of the great turning of the tables, that doesn't mean that the Jews as a whole are safe. And the reason it doesn't mean they're safe is because the way the law functioned is that an edict of the king could not be revoked. That's what it says in verse 8. Haman used the king's signet ring to give the king's authority to his command to slaughter the Jews. Now this king, who is led by whoever is advising him, gives the same signet ring and authority to Esther and Mordecai. But uh, there's a problem because the, the, the command to kill the Jews can't be overturned. So they now have authority to bring a new edict, but how are they going to do it? Chapter 8, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being displayed publicly to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. We'll pause again at the end of chapter 8, verse 17. Notice the clever uh, uh, reversal that Mordecai comes up with, Mordecai and Esther. They can't uh, undo the command that had been given by Haman with the king's authority for the Jews to be annihilated, but they can bring in another command that on the same date, the Jews would have authority to kill anybody who threatened them. It's, it's very clever. And not only that, but to plunder the goods, the Jews were going to be plundered, but now they can be the plunderers. Mordecai is given immense honour and and the city of Susa rejoices. Remember, the whole citadel had been confused by the previous command. The Jews were not unpopular with everyone. They certainly weren't deserving of what had been declared by Haman. 
but now the people are glad Haman or, or Mordecai's edict is quite different from Haman's in its response. But the Jews have light and gladness and joy and honour and they rejoice. And let's read on then to chapter 9 and into chapter 10, the end of the book of Esther. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adaliah and Aradatha and Parmasha, Parmashta and Arasiah and Aradiah and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. We'll pause there after verse 19 of Esther 9. You see again how, how the Jews were able to be delivered, not only preserved from the attack that Haman had planned, but also to be able to kill and do away with their enemies so that they were preserved from future threat. How God had preserved his people. How uh, they were given this favour. 
Let's read then to the end of the book, beginning in verse 20 of Esther 9. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to destroy and to destroy them, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called those days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly bound themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther bound them, and as they had bound themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honour of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. Ending there at the very end of Esther, the ending of chapter 10. What a, what a wonderful story. What a dramatic story. A story that starts out with a, a feasting Persian king. A story that then moves to this uh, seemingly insignificant Jewish family, Mordecai and his relative Esther. A story that brings in this great villain, Haman, and his plot to destroy the Jews. But that ends not only with the Jews vanquishing their enemies, but with a Jew, Mordecai, in the highest position, second in the land, a high position of honour. And Queen Esther, of course, in a position of influence. And not only that, but the numbers of Jewish people have increased. At the end of chapter 8, it said that many people from the, the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. 
whether that was just a temporary declaration to avoid the risk of of uh, being killed, um, or whether it was permanent conversion is also possible. But certainly God has restored the fortunes of his people. He has preserved them and he has blessed them and he has increased them and he has used Esther and Mordecai to bring that about. And so the message of this book is twofold. First of all, God will not abandon his people. Those words from the wife of um, of uh, Haman, of course, captured that, didn't they? If if he's a Jew, verse chapter six, verse thirteen. If Mordecai is of the Jewish people, you won't overcome him. You'll surely fail. Well, God is preserving His people. No enemy will overcome them. But not only that, so there's a message of preservation for the people of God as a whole, but there's also a message of purpose for each individual per- person of God. And that comes in the words of Mordecai to Esther at the end of chapter 4, verses 12 uh, to 14. God will deliver his people, but who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time uh, as this. It's a beautiful bringing together of the big purpose of God to save a people of his own, working through history in the rise and fall of kings and empires. God will preserve his people. No enemy will overcome them. But also the story of the individual, Esther, who is placed by God in the right place at the right time to play her part in God's purpose. And that's our story too. Confident in the purposes of God and his great promises and listening for our part within it, seeking to honour him wherever he has placed us. If we can speak his name, wonderful. If, like the book of Esther, we are unable to, or unable to do it openly and freely, then simply to use whatever influence and power and authority God has entrusted to us for the sake of his purpose and of his people and trusting that he will preserve us. Esther, the woman of great wisdom and great courage, as well as great beauty, is a wonderful example to us.